Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, your son is such a good teacher. He not only used powerful life lessons marked by extraordinary, miraculous effort, but he also, Father, accomplished the very thing that his disciples could not, which is that he secured their freedom from sin, their righteousness from God, by eventually going to a cross to lay his life down to pay for their sins and to bring their righteousness daily. Lord, we thank you that we have security in Christ. We thank you that, Father, no matter what the sea may bring, that, Father, when our eyes are on the Savior, we have nothing to fear. Lord, let us be, I pray, a fearless people. Let us not be those who shrink back, who begin to sink because of the challenges around us, Lord, but let us be those who persevere, continuing walking towards the Savior, knowing he is the one who holds us up, indeed, the one who holds us fast. We ask that you would enable us, Lord, to grow, to be people who have a greater faith, not so much greater in measure on our own part, but, Lord, a greater measure in the sense that we have a greater appreciation for Jesus, the object of our faith, a greater understanding of who he is, Lord, that we might have a deeper trust in him. And I pray these things in his precious name. Amen. In life, where you look will generally determine where you will go. If you hear the encouragement, keep your eye on the prize, you are wisely being urged to keep your focus on the reward that you set out to achieve in order to make the necessary strides in your life which will attain that reward. If your driver's education teacher tells you to keep your eyes on the road, you are being instructed to direct your attention to what is immediately ahead of you, namely the highway and the traffic on it in order to keep you and your teacher, Jacob Pierce, safe. If you are learning the game of baseball, and the coach tells you to keep your eyes on the ball, you are being urged to place all of your attention on the very object that you are to hit with your bat in order to actually make contact with that ball, drive it over the left center field fence, and then trot around the bases with tremendous joy and human glory. Now these seem like such simple, basic instructions, urging us to keep focus on what matters most. But the reason they often have to be stated over and over again is that we are so prone to averting our eyes away from the object that most deserves our focus. For we often forget that where we place our eyes is absolutely crucial. When it comes to our walk with Jesus in this troublesome world, where we look will determine our relationship with fear. It will determine whether or not we quake at the trials of this life or find peace in the midst of our distress. 
where we look as Christians is exceedingly crucial. Now last week, we saw Christ's kingdom provision in verses 13 through 21. There Jesus taught his disciples that they must look to him for provision in all of their needs of life, particularly as they followed him as proclaimers of the gospel in a lost and darkened world. And our takeaway last week is that the king sufficiently provides for his insufficient people. And he showed this by taking a little meager meal and turning it into a a bountiful meal for thousands of people. And now this week, we see Christ's kingdom peace. This is the next lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. That even as he provides for them as they go about proclaiming his name... Jesus also grants them peace as they keep a faithful focus upon him. So last week, kingdom provision. This week, kingdom peace. And today's takeaway, today's takeaway is that we can take peace in our hearts when our eyes are on the king. We can take peace in our hearts when our eyes are on our king. And there are three points I want to bring out from this text this morning. Number one, Jesus is our example of divine dependence. Jesus is our example of divine dependence. Look at verses 22 and 23. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat... And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus sent his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The uh, the Apostle John, his account of this narrative in John chapter 6 relates the detail that Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in this previous text that his miraculous feeding of the 5,000, after doing that, the people present that day, John says, were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but John tells us that after he did that with the bread, the people who were there, they want to come by force and make Jesus their king. And it was this mob-like rush which made Jesus so adamant that they needed to leave town. There was this mob-like rush to make Jesus their political ruler without recognizing their primary need to have Jesus solve their inner sin problem that prompted Jesus to send his disciples off, dismiss the crowd, and head up on the mountain by himself to pray. So Jesus sent his disciples back to the boat where they would depart and head back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is finally now able to commune with his Father in heaven. That's what verse 23 tells us. Now, if you recall, we got the sense back in verse 13 that we looked at last week that Jesus was looking for a little bit of a break in order to have some time for prayer. And after he dealt with the crowds here, he was now at last able to have some fellowship alone with his Father. Yes, my friends, catch this. That is right. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal being 
who existed for all eternity in perfect relationship with God the Father and with God the Spirit, now in human flesh sought out time alone for prayer with his Father in heaven. The divine desired communion with the divine. The Son of God desired prayerful fellowship with the Father God. Jesus' great delight in all eternity past and in all eternity to come is his fellowship in the holy communion of the Trinity. His great joy is the joy that God in three persons enjoys in himself. Jesus' great desire while he was in flesh on earth was to have fellowship with his Father God in heaven. This did not change this desire. In fact, this was an ongoing desire and an ongoing commitment by Jesus. Listen to some other places in the Gospels. It says in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he was a man who practiced silence and solitude. He got away from everybody else where it was quiet, and he prayed, even to desolate places. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. He so valued it that he gave up sleep to be able to go to God, his Father, and pray. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So here we have Jesus getting up early in the morning for the purpose of being able to go and be alone with the Father God in prayer. Different times, different situations, Jesus seeks retreat to be able to commune with his Father in heaven. Now would you like to know what Jesus prayed here in Matthew chapter 14? Well, we obviously don't know precisely what he prayed. But we do have an example of how Jesus went about prayer from John chapter 17, a passage that's called his high priestly prayer. And we can surmise in that passage that this same attitude marked Jesus' entire prayer life. In fact, I want you to hold your hand here since we're talking about Jesus' approach to prayer. And I want you to turn over with me to John chapter 17. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 849. John chapter 17 page 849 if you're using a pew bible and notice how jesus starts this prayer off in john 17 verse 1 it says when jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 1, Jesus asks the Father to glorify him with the same glory that Jesus once had previously with the Father. And he wants him to bring this glory about in Jesus' life, namely the glory of going to the cross, 
the most awful yet glorious moment in all of human history. He wants the Father to glorify him so that in verse 2, they might give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to Jesus. He's asking the Father to glorify himself by doing the thing that would bring him the most glory, which is to go to a cross and shed his blood so that you and I might be forgiven and be part of his family. And then he might say in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He wants to be returned to that glory. And then look what he says in verse 17. Stay in John 17, but look at verse 17. Notice his next petition. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. That word sanctify means to make holy. He's saying, Father, make all my little sheep. Make my disciples, Peter and James and John, and the people who know me, my children at Riverside Baptist Church, Lord, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prays that God would make his people holy. And then he prays in verse 24. Look at this. Look at what Jesus prays in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus expresses his desire in verse 24 to his father that all of those whom the father had given to him would one day see his glory, the glory that Jesus had before the foundation of the world, which means that we would spend that eternity with him, beholding his glory until the end of all days, which means from eternity to eternity. He wants us all to behold it, and he's praying accordingly. So these are the kinds of things that Jesus prayed about. And so back in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus goes by himself to pray. He takes some time alone and he goes to pray. And we can only expect him to pray things along those lines, both for himself and for us, his precious people. So considering Christ's devotion to prayer here in this text, this proves, or this provokes, excuse me, an important question for us to ask. How do we dependently keep our eyes on the king in the midst of the terrible winds and waves of our lives? How do we dependently keep our eyes on our king in the midst of all of the terrible winds and the waves that we experience in our lives? Well, I think if we're going to follow the example of Jesus, at the very least... It includes following the lead of Jesus by prioritizing fellowship with our Father God in heaven. My friends, if Jesus so needed, if Jesus so prized, if Jesus so depended upon fellowship with his Father God in heaven, then how much more so must I and how much more so must we? I do not hesitate to say that there is nothing more important in your life than your fellowship with God. In fact, I would even so bold as to say the most important thing in your life, if you know Jesus Christ, is to fellowship with your God in heaven. It's more important than your relationship to your spouse. It's more important than your relationship to your kids. It's more important than your relationship to the church. It's more important than your relationship to your work or anything else. 
Now, don't get me wrong. It affects all of those things, and all of those things are connected to it. But number one, above all else, is the same priority Jesus had. He longed to have fellowship with his Father. It was his highest aim, and so it must be for us. Our fellowship with God, my friends, is vital if we are to know peace in times of adversity. After all, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So if we're going to bear fruit, what must we do? Abide in Jesus. Stick close, in other words, to Jesus. And what is this fruit? Paul tells us, Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. If you want the fruit of peace in your days of adversity, the answer is to abide in Christ, to stick close to Jesus, which is to fellowship with him. Now, I have said this to some of you, but I'll announce it now. My doctoral project that I am working, I think, hard to accomplish pertains to this very theme. Here is the title of my doctoral project, which I will lay out for you in the next couple of years. It is equipping the members of Riverside to practice communion with God through Bible meditation and prayer. My project is going to be to lay out sermons and a small group series that help us see the reality, the importance, and the how-to when it comes to communing or fellowshipping with God. That we might make the first thing the first thing in our lives and in our church. So at that, I'm excited to get to that. But right now, let me just say... Follow the example of Jesus by making fellowship with God your first priority in life. Secondly, this morning, King Jesus, not only is he our example of dependence upon God, but King Jesus offers peace on our frightful seas. King Jesus offers peace on our frightful seas. Look at verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So adversity... Adversity came to Christ's disciples in the form of harassing winds and waves. Having departed from Jesus in a boat while he was up in prayer on the mountain, the twelve were now, it says, a long way from the land, with their boat being beaten by the waves, it says. The distance across the Sea of Galilee was pretty much the same in that day as it is today. It was about 13 miles north to south, and it was about eight miles from east to west. And verse 24 says that they were a long way from the land as they traveled from the east side over to the west, or the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It says they were a long way from the land, verse 24, which in the Greek is literally that they were many stadius, 
stadius. A stadius was a unit of length of about one-eighth of a mile. And they were many stadius, it says, from the land. Which is a detail that simply tells us what the ESV translators took the liberty to give us. That they were a long ways from the shore. They'd already traveled a long ways. And as they made their way to the other side of the sea, their boat was under assault by the winds and the waves. Again, verse 24, it says that the boat was beaten by those waves. It was subject to a severe distress, even a harassment from the breakers which pounded against the boat one after another. Now think, this must have been utterly exhausting and utterly terrifying for these men. It was dark, and remember, these boats were powered by their own strength. Their mast likely had to be lowered due to the great wind, which meant that they had to power that boat by rowing it with the oars against the wind at night. And let's do some math to see just how long these guys were at this. John's Gospel says that the disciples departed in the evening, which was anywhere between 6 and 9 p.m. They departed in the evening between 6 and 9 p.m. And verse 25 here, Jesus it says that Jesus finally came to them in the fourth watch of the night, which was a Roman time measurement referring to the period between 3 and 6 a.m. So they left between 6 and 9 p.m., and Jesus only came to them between 3 and 6 a.m. So if my math is correct, they were at this for about six hours at least, maybe more. Now I've canoed. It doesn't take me six hours to get exhausted. It didn't take me six hours to get exhausted when I was 18 canoeing. And these guys have been at it for seemingly a whole night. So here's the question. Why would Jesus let his beloved young men, his disciples, face such a struggle? Why would Jesus, who had just fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, by simply praying over a minuscule lunch, why would he allow them to face such adversity? And with this question, I want you to look at the end of our passage. Look at verses 34 to 36. It says, when they had crossed over, this is afterwards, after the events that we're looking at today. When they had crossed over, they came to land in Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So let me again ask the question a different way. Why would Jesus, who would very soon heal gobs of people by simply letting them touch the fringe of his garment, why would he let his beloved disciples fear for their lives as they were beaten by those terrible breakers against their little boat? Now let's ask the question that we really want to ask. Why does Jesus, the Son of God himself, allow such struggles into the lives of his people? Let's make it even more pointed. Why does God allow such struggle in my life? And Matthew's answer, again and again throughout this gospel, is that through this adversity, Jesus wanted his disciples to learn something. The awesome sight of Jesus was at first a vision of terror. Look at verse 25. 
In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now for those of us who have read this passage many times over the course of many years, we can begin to lose sight of the sheer weightiness that is revealed in this text, can't we? We begin to just gloss over it because we've been hearing it since we were five years old. Well, get this. Jesus came to his disciples while they were in the boat on the stormy sea, not by means of another boat, but by the means of his own legs. He did not swim, nor did he doggy paddle. The Son of God, with the full might of heaven, the one who created that very sea and created even that storm which caused those waves, walked upon the Sea of Galilee that night just like he would walk upon the dry land. Physics is an obstacle for all men and women. Physics is not an obstacle for the God-man, Jesus Christ. And here... Jesus pulled back a little more of the curtain that covers his glory and he shows himself to his disciples and to us. But the disciples' response to him was the same response I think that you and I would give. They were terrified. Verse 26 says that they thought he was a phantasma in the Greek, which is where we get the word phantom. They thought he was a phantom. They thought he was an apparition. They thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a ghost. And what else could explain a man walking on the sea? These are reasonable men, and Jesus was doing an unreasonable thing. Their first sight of Jesus as he displayed a small piece of his heavenly glory was sheer and utter terror. They were like Isaiah when he saw a vision of the Lord God on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6 as he cried out, Woe is me! I am undone. I'm unraveling at the sight of this. These men are in sheer terror. But Jesus, in verse 27, begins to offer comforting words of his divine presence. Not a presence that would make them quake, but a presence that would make them find comfort. While standing on the sea, he told them to take heart and to not be afraid. Of course, to tell someone to take heart is to instruct them to turn their discouragement into encouragement, to turn their fear into courage. And to not be afraid is also quite self-explanatory. They were no longer to be in terror, for they knew the one who was out on the sea. The grounds for these men to take heart were Christ's words, it is I. My dear little children, turn your sorrow and your terror into comfort and trust. Do not be afraid, but be at peace, for it is I, your Jesus, and I have come to you this night. Now at these words, it is I, Two types of Old Testament texts should begin to come to mind to Christ's disciples who have walked with him for long in this world and have joyfully become acquainted with his holy word. First, those Old Testament texts should come to mind that have to do with God's existence as the great I am. Jesus says, it is I 
And God says repeatedly in Old Testament scripture, I am the I am. For instance, in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You want to give them a name? All right, here's the name. I am. That's the name given to the people. Who is sending me to the people? I am is sending me to the people. I am is a word that refers to one's self-existence. God is saying, I am. I am existent in myself. He is the uncaused God. He is the being behind all other beings. The God who was never created, but has created all. He is the I am. He is the uncaused God. Nothing has brought him about. He's always been. He's always existed. In Jesus' statement, it is I, though no doubt confusing in that day along the water, appears to be a veiled allusion to this incredible truth. Take heart. It's I. I am with you. The self-existent one. And secondly, in our minds should come those Old Testament passages having to do with God's promise to always be with his people. For instance, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The Lord God, in a myriad of texts, promises to be with his redeemed people, those whom he knows by name, even as they pass through the waters and the fires of their difficult lives. Well, Jesus is drawing this imagery to the minds of his disciples with this incredible statement, it is I. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I am with you. David Platt, who is the former head of the International Mission Board that we help support with our church, who now pastors in Washington, D.C., he writes this about this text. He says that Jesus not only stills storms, but he also uses storms as a pathway to a greater revelation of himself. He not only stills storms, but he also uses storms as a pathway to a greater revelation of himself. So whether you're with your 11 buds on a boat on a sea while the winds are raging, or you're the mom that doesn't know how to school the kid, you're the dad who doesn't know how to make ends meet, you're the Christian who wants to see your neighbor come to know Jesus Christ, but your neighbor wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ, you're the parent that has seen your son walk away from the Lord. You're the man or the woman that just found out you have cancer. Whatever the winds, whatever the waves, Jesus uses those storms to be a pathway to a greater revelation of himself. To help us see him better than we did before. There is divine peace for us in the midst of our troubled days. God, my friends, as we know, will allow us to face troubles in this troubled world. He will allow us to face the seas and all of their rage. 
But this is meant to teach us many important lessons. For example, it teaches us our own insufficiency and our great need for God. And with this, it teaches us the brokenness of this world and the ravaging effects of sin that are upon it and upon us. And this lesson, this teaching, is meant to excite us for the kingdom that cannot be shaken that is to come. Because even though those winds and waves come and they make this earth quite unpleasant at times, it makes us long for the better homeland, the better kingdom that will come where the waves will never rock the boat. As we live in the midst of troubled days, we can overcome our fear and enjoy peace by looking to our king. As Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious, worried, about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then get this, if you go make those prayers, this is the promise. And the peace, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not to be anxious. Instead, we're to take it to God fervently, boldly. And what does he supply? Peace. A peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't take away the waves, though he does in the text. He doesn't necessarily take away the waves, but he does give us a peace in the midst of the waves. And this leads to my third point today. King Jesus is worthy of our faithful attention. King Jesus is worthy of our faithful attention. And by faithful attention, let me explain, I mean both our constant attention and our trusting attention. By our faithful or constant attention, I mean our continual focus on Jesus for all that he is and all that he has done for us in the gospel. And by our faithful trusting attention, I mean our reliance upon Jesus, even when the messaging around us seeks to contradict Jesus. So we continually look to him and we trust him. That's what I mean. King Jesus is worthy of our faithful attention, our continual reliant focus. Well, Peter... Peter, Peter, upon asking an incredible question, did the incredible with Jesus. Look at verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Now, I cannot fathom. I've thought about it. I've studied it. Nothing's answered it correctly enough for me. I cannot fathom what would make Peter ask such a question. I mean, even if I felt tremendous relief at seeing Jesus out on the sea, taking tremendous comfort in his arrival, as extraordinary and incredible as his arrival was, I cannot imagine anything prompting me to ask what Peter asked. People are different than me, I guess. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. In these verses, 
we see Matthew's presentation of the disciples' partial understanding of Jesus at this point in his ministry. A presentation that Matthew, Matthew is going to make again and again as we go forward. Peter here is evidently so convinced that Jesus is the Christ with the full power of God that he felt compelled to join Jesus out on the waves. The waves that, mind you, the waves that just a few moments earlier made him fear for his life. It is inexplicable to me, but to Peter, it made sense at the time. Lord, if that's you, let me come out on the waves with you. But as we're going to see, his understanding of Jesus was not yet complete. And therefore, his faith was still little and accompanied by doubt. Well, Jesus responded to Peter's amazing request and said, come. And Peter left the boat and actually began to walk to Jesus. The wind was still howling. The waves were still crashing. The boat was still being harassed. But out came Peter, one foot after the other, walking on the water towards his king. Yes, this is miraculous. Yes, this is supernatural. Yes, this happened. Yes, it's because the Bible tells us it happened. All of those things are true. How dare I, because we've come to a place in our culture where we can no longer accept the supernatural, even though all of human history up until about 100 years ago all accepted the supernatural. How dare we just assume that because we think we have arrived in our pride that God cannot do the supernatural he has, he's done this, and my friends, I think he even does it today. Peter began to sink because he failed to appreciate fully the object of his faith. Look at verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, notice verse 30 carefully. It says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. He had seen Jesus on the water. He had spoken to Jesus out on the water. And he had left his boat to walk to Jesus out on the water. But now, he noticed the wind assaulting the water and losing his focus on Jesus he became afraid. This is the case of all of Christ's disciples when they take their eyes off of the king. Beginning to sink into the Sea of Galilee, Peter cried out, Lord, save me! He looked to his only hope. He sought his only refuge. He cried out to the only means of his salvation. He looked to his king, his Lord, his Messiah, and he asked for salvation. And Jesus responded, as he always does, at a needy request that's humbly asked. He reached out his hand, he took hold of Peter, and notice, he did not immediately pull him back into the boat. Instead, still out on the water, he speaks to Peter and says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, we have to be clear what Jesus means here by this statement, O oh, you of little faith. Jesus is not so much rebuking Peter for the little amount of his faith, but I think more so for the little object of his faith. Peter's problem, in other words, was not that his capacity for faith was too small, but that the object of his faith was too small. 
Peter did not yet fully believe in Jesus for who he truly was. We're going to see that. He does not yet grasp Jesus and all of his significance and all of the need that Peter himself had for Jesus himself to go and hang on a tree and bleed and die for Peter. He does not yet fully grasp Jesus. If he had, if Peter had fully grasped Jesus, he never would have taken his eyes off of him. He never would have doubted him. He never would have worried about the waves and he never would have begun to sink. He would have known that his Jesus is fully capable of besting those little waves. Now I want you to see a little bit more about how Jesus speaks about little faith. Hold your hand here, but flip forward a couple of chapters to chapter 17. Matthew 17, and look at verses 18 through 20. A text we'll look at extensively down the road. But Matthew 17, look at verses 18 through 20. It says, and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Stop. That's a good thing. Jesus has done a good thing. But then notice, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? You see, they'd been trying to, but they'd been failing at it earlier in the passage. Why could we not cast it out? And then verse 20, Jesus said to them, verse 20, because of your little faith, there it is again, and then he says, a little more explanation, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, which is one of the most smallest seeds you could find in that day, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I think what Jesus is saying is it's not a matter of how much capacity for faith we have. It really isn't a matter of how much faith we think that we have. The issue is the object of the faith that we have. Who is the one that we are looking to? In his fullness, do we grasp who he is? And if we grasp who he is, then no matter how weak we might be, if we trust in him, even with little faith, grasping who he is in all of his glory, then nothing can stop us. Not even moving a mountain, according to Jesus metaphorically. So Jesus tells Peter, he's of little faith. He asks him, why did you doubt? Now finally... Jesus revealed why he deserves the full faith and worship of his disciples. Look at verses 22 and 23. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When Jesus and Peter entered the boat, all of a sudden, the troublesome storm was over. What does that tell us? Is it most likely that it was a great coincidence? Or does it tell us that the author of the storm himself just entered the boat and said, stop. The storm ended. The one who caused the storm to teach his disciples is now the one who has halted the storm in order to comfort his disciples. And his disciples responded in the only proper way. They worshipped him. They acknowledged his divine power. And they said to him, truly you are the son of God. 
Now, my friends, the disciples are going to struggle with the object of their faith many times over the rest of this book. In fact, it would be a lifelong struggle for these men to appreciate the enormity of Jesus in their lives. But here they declared what is true. Jesus is the Son of God. We, just as they, will struggle with accepting the enormity of Jesus Christ, but let us oh so willingly say, He is the Son of God. And as we fellowship with Him more, communing with Him more, understanding Him more in His Word and with His people, let us grow in our understanding to the point that we might be able to do great things even with little faith. My friends, it is always right to have our eyes on Jesus. Christ's rescue of Peter here is really a reminder of God's work of salvation that he accomplished throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 18, verse 16, God says, He's sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. God sent from on high. He took the psalmist. He drew him out of all those hard waters. Psalm 69, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. That's mud. It's come up where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And yet cry out they continue to do. My friends, understand today, Jesus can save you if you will look to him with childlike faith. If like a little boy to his dad, hand in hand, you trust as you walk the street, knowing that you're in good, safe hands, if you will put your trust in Jesus, the one who is capable of accomplishing what you need accomplished regarding your sin problem, then you will be safe. If you put your childlike faith in Jesus, who loved you so much that he went to a cross and bled and died, shedding his blood to pay for your sins, rising again three days later, that he might conquer sin, death, and hell, if you will put your trust in that Lord, that King, that Savior, my friend, you will be safe. You will be saved. Just as Christ saved the Christian life is one of constant looking. In fact, one of the reasons why we gather week in and week out is to keep being reminded of Jesus and his gospel because week in and week out, we keep forgetting Jesus Christ and his gospel. And yet the author of Hebrews, he says in Hebrews 12 that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says we are to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you and I may not grow weary or faint-hearted, we are to consider Jesus. We are to look to Jesus. Our whole lives should be marked by a constant attention on Christ, never averting our eyes from him. So we can take peace in our hearts when our eyes 
are on our team. My friends, Jesus is your example of divine dependence. He has shown you in his own walk on this world what you need, which is a daily, steadfast fellowship with the Father as your highest priority in life. And, my friends, Jesus offers you peace on your frightful seas. That as you face all of the complications of this life, he is the one who provides you peace when your eyes are upon him. And with that, my friends, Jesus is worthy of your faithful attention, your constant trusting gaze upon him, the object, the object who is capable of saving you and giving you strength and peace and all of your turmoil. So let us look to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you have not left us as orphans. You have given us everything we need, Lord, for life and godliness. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us the comforts, Father, that you provide every day. You give us promises, Lord. Lord, we especially thank you that we have Jesus, our Savior, Lord, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that we get to look to him. Lord, increase our understanding of Jesus. Increase our appreciation for the object of our faith, Lord, that we might ever gaze at him, Lord, and find peace in the midst of turmoil. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.